Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to part three of our coverage of Elizabeth Taylor. When we left her, Elizabeth had just ended the seventh marriage to the sixth husband. We had talked about her sustained rise as an actress, about her many awards. She's at this point won two Academy Awards, one for Butterfield 8 and another one six years later for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She's had more illnesses and hospitalizations than either you or I can count. Um, She's also helped destigmatize recovery when she admitted herself into the Betty Ford Center for addiction to pills and alcohol. So Elizabeth Taylor was just coming out of her treatment at the Betty Ford Clinic. The year was 1985, and there was a terrible volcano brewing in the gay community, a mysterious virus that no one understood, and it had no cure. The director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, whose name was Anthony Fauci, wrote a memo warning of this plague's transmissibility and danger and his warning was dismissed as fear-mongering and, and I quote, too alarmist. So if you think history does not echo, get your time machine and go back to 1985. Elizabeth Taylor saw friends and co-workers start to um, fall prey to this disease. But instead of compassion and concern, society began to shun the victims, to stigmatize them. This must be payback for quote, their lifestyle. Elizabeth had come out of treatment sort of revitalized. You know how you sometimes just have motivation just bubbling over and most of us clean a closet or we might paint something. But Elizabeth was approached by the organizers of a major AIDS benefit called the AIDS Project Los Angeles Commitment to Life, and she was asked to attach her name to this event. Well, she had worked with a couple of the organizers, one of whom later said, there are three draws in this world, the Pope, the Queen of England, and Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) What she said was, I couldn't just sit back and watch this terrible sickness take so many of my friends without wondering if there's something I could do, though I couldn't imagine what that would be. You know, she had wanted to retire, to come out of the Betty Ford and just step back into the shadows and have a private life at last. Like she's, if you think about it, the last time she had a private life, she was in the little Tweety Bird house of Little Swallows with her horse and the birds. Mm -hmm. And that was a mighty, mighty long time ago. But the world was absolutely not going to let her do that. All right, then. She said, if you're going to treat me as a commodity, if you're going to harvest my life for print inches in your newspaper and magazine, then how about I use you for a change and do some good with this fame? One thing I can do is open some doors. I can go where other people cannot go. And she wanted to be more than a figurehead for this event, this, you know, this foundation that had asked her to help. And she was making calls, trying to get some other big names involved. What she actually said was, quote, I wanted to retire, but the tabloids wouldn't let me. So I thought, if you're going to screw me over, I'll use you. Okay, well, maybe Beckett Graham didn't want to say the word screw. Oh, (laughs) I I chose to say harvest my life. But that's so not a Liz word. I mean, she just used, she spoke whatever it came into her head. She didn't filter it too much. She just let it out. 
Well, Elizabeth, um, whatever the language she chose, wanted now that she's decided to be involved, she wanted to be more than just a figurehead. And she began making calls. She's trying to get some other big names involved. You know what? She said on the phone to these people, you don't even have to go to the event. Just give a donation in your name or put your name on a committee. And most of them were like, whoa. No way. Also, Elizabeth, you should stop. This can't do anything but bring you down. Don't attach your name to something like this, they tried to say to her. Her old friend, Frank Sinatra, he called it one of her, quote, lame dog causes. But every time somebody said that just made her matter and matter, there was so much bigotry against the gay community and against people who had AIDS that she couldn't stand it. She said, quote, it offended my sensibility, my sense of fairness. I know so many homosexuals. I mean, let's fix facts, shall we? There would be no art in America if it weren't for gays. And there's nothing worse than being disappointed by people that you had had faith in. And she's slowly realizing that Hollywood, despite its history, despite its composition, was acting very hypocritical about AIDS, you know, and they weren't talking about it. And a pandemic doesn't go away because it's inconvenient and you just wish it would. To which I say, ahem, again. No kidding. Elizabeth said, and I quote, Instead of extending a loving hand and saying, You helped me get where I am today. Without you, I wouldn't have made it. They turned their backs. The stars, by the way, that did attend at her request, Madonna, Cindy Lauper, Burt Reynolds, and Sammy Davis Jr., who was probably getting it from both sides, from Frank Sinatra, you know, and from Elizabeth Taylor. And he chose the side of justice and Elizabeth Taylor. At this point, she said that she kept repeating, I will not be ignored and I will not go away. So please help me. That she got any of these celebrities to show up, I think, is a testament to her, her staying power in Hollywood, you know, the power that she still had. So um, <laughs> evidently, right before the event, the organizers, they made a little storyboard and um, hard to explain what that is. It's basically like a cartoon that you draw that kind of illustrates the way that you want the movie or the event to go. So they show up with this storyboard and they they unfold it and they're shaking with just like, you know, there's a star. It's Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> she interviewed them by the pool and she's laying there in a red bikini. They made a point of saying she had such star power that she like blew all of our composure out of our bodies. <laughs> and we were almost afraid to talk to her. But they did get their presentation to her. She loved it. She made suggestions. She asked intelligent questions. She showed up and she raised over a million dollars on that one, the first event that she attended and helped to organize. And unfortunately, not too long afterward, she got the horrible news that her old friend, Rock Hudson, who she had met and befriended all the way back on the set of Giant with the doomed James Dean, her friend Rock Hudson, was dying of AIDS. Elizabeth went to see Rock Hudson and sat on his bed and hugged him. Now, anyone that lived through that remember how scared people were. Nobody really knew how it was transmitted. Everyone was really afraid. And she just went right over there and comforted her friend. So even though Rock Hudson himself uh, maintained that he was suffering from hepatitis, that's what was in fact told to the president and the members of the press that would ask, his people evidently leaked the information 
to the press. And he was the first celebrity of note to have been rumored to have AIDS. Rock Hudson said in private, I am not happy that I'm sick. I am not happy that I have AIDS. But if that is helping others, I can at least know that my own misfortune has had some positive worth. In addition, Elizabeth had another close contact that had been diagnosed with HIV. Her own daughter-in-law, Eileen Getty, she was the mother of two of Elizabeth's grandchildren. She contracted the disease through a, a an affair. So instead of shunning her daughter-in-law because, you know, she cheated on her son, Elizabeth didn't. She embraced her. She said, this girl is like my own child. How can I do anything but everything I can do to save her life? I'm going to save her. And she's still alive. So Elizabeth was galvanized from assorted directions to make a difference. And Elizabeth Taylor joined with some prominent doctors, um, Matilda Krim and Michael Gottlieb in particular, and other scientists to create the American Foundation for AIDS Research, known today as AMFAR, which was a joining of the two coasts major organizations for AIDS research. A month later, Elizabeth's friend Rock Hudson died. And it became very clear to Elizabeth what her life's work from now on was going to be. And Rock Hudson didn't want his death to be in vain. And it wasn't because he put a celebrity face to this disease. And what happened after that is people from Hollywood started to get on board. Elizabeth said, it was actually because of Rock that I was able to get people to come to dinners. The town said, oh, one of our own has been stricken. And then Hollywood really got there sh- together. That was me bleeping myself out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elizabeth Taylor put the full force of her celebrity behind this cause. Now, the TV spots, I remember. I definitely remember. She used to say to them, don't drop me out for anything under 50K, though. Like, don't waste my power. She wasn't being smarmy. Like, wasn't Linda Evangelista who said, I don't even get out of bed for less than $10,000. Do you remember that? Also, around this time. Around the same era. Yeah. uh, No, I. uh. Anyway, Elizabeth Taylor convinced another powerhouse, Bob Hope, to emcee some events. Now, Dr. Krim, I just want to say Matilda Krim was the head of AMFAR, and we're not going to cover her today, but do know that. She fought for education of medical professionals and the public, a reduction of stigma and and practical things like clean needle exchanges. But she didn't have the celebrity power that Elizabeth had. It was kind of a one-two punch that they really worked well together. You know, Elizabeth had the power of her celebrity and Dr. Krim had the power of science. And um, people started to call Elizabeth Taylor the Joan of Arc of AIDS activism. And I think there is a parallel if you've heard Joan of Arc, not the hearing voices in the in the garden necessarily, but the like the facing of almost insurmountable odds mm-hmm. surrounded by people who don't necessarily believe your story mm-hmm. and just persevering and being absolutely full of faith and conviction that she was A, going to win, and B, that her cause was just. And so, yes, I think there are parallels to Joan of Arc to be had. Together, Matilda Krim and Elizabeth Taylor testified before Congress multiple times about the need for government help for the victims of this epidemic. Congress would move on that a little later in our story, but 
at the outset, they were just starstruck and grinning. And I quote, like ridiculous 12 year olds. So maybe <laughs> like being <laughs> exposed to an allergen, they had to get Elizabeth Taylor in the room several times before they actually had the the fog lifted. And they could remember, <laughs> oh, wait, I'm a senator. I should be listening a different way. In 1990, she returned to a calmer Senate and testified for Ted Kennedy's bill called the Ryan White Care Act. Uh, Ryan White was a young boy who had contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion and was therefore ruthlessly barred from his middle school. And Elizabeth's testimony was a key to getting that Ryan White Care Act passed, some rights for AIDS sufferers. So it wasn't just celebrity. She really got some substantive things done in the Senate. Elizabeth had long been friends with the Reagans. They were neighbors. He was a former Hollywood person who's now running the country. And he did get a lot of flack for not stepping up to AIDS as fast as he could. It took him until 1985, after Rock Hudson's death, before he even used the word in public, you know, before he even said AIDS. Well... (laughs) I have to say, okay, so it did take him quite a while to even make a presidential commission about it. He was extremely reluctant. His um, conservative base really thought and said out loud that this was a punishment for some behavior. And after he finally got the commission, he only nominated one homosexual person to the Commission on AIDS. And a senator, a New Hampshire Republican named Gordon Humphrey, attacked that man's appointment. And he said, the president of the United States should strive at all costs to avoid sending the message to society, especially to impressionable youth, that homosexuality is simply an alternative lifestyle. The president should only have named heterosexual experts to the commission. So how effective is this commission that is not really doing anything. And if senators are willing to just mock it to that extent in the national press, you know, that's what Ronald Reagan was dealing with is the fact that his party and his supporters did not want to deal with it at Mm. all. So Elizabeth was irritated that he was dragging his feet so and being so ineffective. And so she took a technique that is now relatively common, the open letter. Like I'll write a letter to him, but it will be published in the press. So he must react to it. So here is the open letter, daring him not to act after the following. And I quote, your participation in the Amphar Gala would mean a great deal to people like me who are critically concerned about the impact of the growing AIDS epidemic. It is hard for me to actually put into words what it would mean to me personally and to all of us trying to find a cure for the disease if you and Mrs. Reagan were to accept my invitation. Now, Ronald Reagan had not wanted to shine any light on AIDS. You know, in his press room, his press secretary literally called it the gay plague and used to make jokes about it. And anytime a reporter would ask about Ronald Reagan's views on AIDS, the press secretary would ask that reporter, so do you have it? Is that why you're asking? It was very contentious, mm-hmm. but she shamed him into action and he did He did attend, grudgingly, grudgingly. So take note of the control Elizabeth Taylor has over the leader of the free world. Other world leaders saw with their own eyes how important her work was. That's the same year that Francois Mitterrand of France 
awarded Elizabeth Taylor the Legion of Honor. That's France's highest honor, both civilian and military. It's been around since 1802. And he gave her this award both for her work in theater and her AIDS activism. And at one point, (laughs) this is kind of cracking me up because of all the people to think big jewelry was tacky. I don't know. She decided that the actual award part didn't go with her outfit that night and she was just going to wear the red ribbon. She was so proud of having gotten that award, by the way, but she just couldn't bring herself to attach the bottom part. And the ribbon was sticking out and somebody said, oh, Elizabeth, your tag is sticking out of your of your shirt. <laughs> and she's just like such ignorance. So this fashion statement of a red ribbon will come back uh, later in her life. But this is the first instance of her wearing a red ribbon as decoration. In other European news, Princess Diana, the other giant powerhouse celebrity of AIDS activism, ceremoniously opened the first HIV and AIDS unit in a UK hospital. And she said, HIV does not make people dangerous to know. You can shake their hands. You can give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. Nelson Mandela later said of Princess Diana, when she sat on the bed of a man with HIV and held his hand, she transformed public attitudes and improved their life chances. Now, that is something Elizabeth Taylor had done with Rock Hudson. They had the exact same instinct to show themselves gloveless and in proximity to a sufferer to prove to the world that it was safe and that these people should not be shunned. Um, So early on, the AIDS epidemic had these two powerful female warriors on each side of the Atlantic. Of course, there's doctors. Of course, there's activists. But to the average citizen that was nervous, these two ladies helped to change the attitudes and behaviors of the world, really. That's what touched people, you know? That's what got to people. You can talk science till you're blue in the face and people's eyes glaze over. But there's Princess Diana or Elizabeth Taylor doing something as simple as holding someone's hand and that gets attention. It cannot be overstated the effect that they had on bringing awareness to AIDS. So Elizabeth Taylor was definitely enjoying a second career as an activist, but as if she was not busy enough, she launched another career. At the age of 54 in 1987, she gave her name, her face, and her person in the form of promotions to a brand new perfume, Elizabeth Taylor's Passions. And you know, it's funny. I don't think I remember this when I was getting it confused the whole time with poison. Remember that smell? Sort of a dusty, dirty purple smell? I swear. I remember liking poison, but passion, I just don't know. Maybe you weren't old enough. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. Her market is wasn't how old were you in 1987? We are going to draw a veil. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mine is an older veil, so I absolutely remember Elizabeth Taylor's passion. I have to tell you, on my wall in front of me, I have all these Elizabeth Taylor quotes because she said some of the most awesome things. And I'm like, can I stick this in here? I want to stick this in here. But one of the things that she had said was, I've always admitted that I'm ruled by my passions. 
So that's the same name as a perfume. Yeah. Within a couple of years, it was the fourth most popular woman's perfume, earning the company $70 million a year. Now, I wanted to find out what the other three were. So I was researching and (laughs) my gears kind of got stopped when I found an article that was called, Remember These 115 Popular Vintage Perfumes from the 90s? I was like, wait, vintage? (laughs) Wait a second. So I can't tell you what the other three were. Well, one thing about Elizabeth Taylor, her name, they did a poll and the name Elizabeth Taylor had 100% name recognition among every single person that they encountered. Elizabeth Taylor meant glamour, sex, adventure, bravery, being yourself, you know, maybe even a little contemptuous of mere mortals. I have another quote for that one. Okay. I don't in- <laughs> I don't entirely approve of some of the things I've done or am or have been, but I'm me. God knows I'm me. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> now, she is not our first subject with her own perfume, of course. Hello, Coco Chanel. But unlike Miss Chanel, Elizabeth Taylor donated a large percentage of her revenue to charitable causes, specifically, of course, Amfar and other AIDS charities. Now, in her personal life, she was still and had never recovered from the horrible back pain that was started way back during the National Velvet years. She also had an extraordinary amount of health issues. She became addicted to the painkillers that had been prescribed to her for all of her assorted maladies and went back to the Betty Ford Clinic again. Elizabeth had said, getting old is such a... I swear, I never would have believed this 30 years ago. Me in a wheelchair? Osteoporosis? From those doctors. It's turned me into an addict. Now you can bleep both bitch and if you want. (laughs) Now, normally I wouldn't harp on this because it's really, you know, nobody's business that she had to go back. But the best thing that came out of this adventure was yet another romantic entanglement. While you are in the Betty Ford Center, you are not allowed to have romantic relationships. And this one did not start off romantic. Everyone is equal in there. Everybody supports each other. And Elizabeth Taylor and a man named Larry Fortensky, who was 20 years her junior, he was a Vietnam vet, a blue-collar construction worker. They just hit it off. He was there because he'd had too many DUIs. The important thing is that they just connected and they helped each other through their time in the Betty Ford Center. He was one of the members of her her group. And I guess, you know, they bring together a certain number of people and you let it all out. And the counselors kind of let you have it. Anytime somebody made an excuse, the counselor would sort of be blunt and, and some might say mean. And evidently, Larry Fortensky always stood up for her and um, that she had special circumstances and that she can't be judged with the same scale as other people. She had a lot more to do with, et cetera. Like he always defended her in the group session. And that really got into her heart. I mean, that's awesome. Like, <laughs> you're on my side at last. And so they came out and they came out of the treatment center and then they came out to the press about their relationship. And everybody's like, what is this dude? Everyone was very confused. Not a guy who played a construction worker or not a guy who employed thousands of construction workers, (laughs) but a man who literally came back to Elizabeth Taylor's house in Bel Air at six o'clock and left his dirty work boots outside and came in and washed up for dinner. (laughs) 
But she would show up on his job sites. There's this glamorous celebrity walks up to him, gives him this huge smooch. And his response to her is, uh, you have to wear a hard hat here. So she just put one on. Like, well, like okay. the whole world side-eyed each other for that sort of thing. And also that he was 20 years younger than she was. Dudes do that all the time. I'm just saying. <laughs> Not so much his age, though. I remember people being like, okie dokie. But once upon a time, the guy had a birthday party for you at Madison Square Garden. Um, and there was a plane named after you. And there's a guy now in Carhartts drinking beer in your kitchen. I'm just saying it isn't the same. One of these things is not like the other, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she called him Larry the lion, which is such an uh, 80s thing that I, <laughs> I was telling Susan earlier that I just want to be like, you know, I, whatever. But Elizabeth's only response was, I'm glad I can still surprise all of you ding dongs. Substitute, of course, the bleepable word of your choice. <laughs> Her vocabulary was tartar than mine everybody's vocabulary is tartar than yours. You do come up with some very creative, um, usually like Victorian slang that I'm always impressed by. <laughs> yeah, you know what is funny? I remember when my small child once said, this hurts like the Dickens. And I'm like, I am modeling behavior from the wrong century. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, <laughs> This is me trying to get another one of these quotes in. But this one actually really applies because, yes, she knew who she was as a celebrity. She knew how she was looked at and how she was viewed. But she herself just viewed herself as just another person. She said, I learned very young that the minute you start believing your own publicity, you're in a world of trouble. So I take the hubbub surrounding my life with a dose of salt, a big dose so I think she could be like herself with him, which was great. I, that, isn't that what you want for your friends? That is. That is. When Elizabeth Taylor was 58, her second perfume was released. This is the one I remember. White diamonds. The fragrance dreams are made of. <laughs> I remember this. I remember the commercial. These dudes are gambling and she comes up to them, takes off these big earrings and throws them on the table. These have always brought me luck. It was a big deal. That yeah. was a big deal. Did you wear white diamonds? Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> but I, I do remember that. And you know what? I want to say that that little bit where she puts them on the table, not so fast, Plum Ryan. She takes the earring off. These have always brought me luck, but um, I think it's been used recently. Like they took that little clip out and they're still selling it. Like at Christmas time, I, I have nothing to substantiate this, but I just recall seeing it recently and not when I was looking for the ad, which I put on the show notes because <laughs> it's iconic. <laughs> right. Well, so Susan didn't wear it. I didn't wear it, but I don't think it matters because, again, with the second perfume, we're in the 70-ish million category on her second venture into the fragrance world. She's earning $2 a second. She's doing a bit of okay without us. And she can do whatever she wants. And one of the things she wants to do is shame people in power. In particular, she wanted to shame President Bush. She, in front of the world press, said, this is HW, by the way, the, the papa, this was uh, in Amsterdam at the 8th International Conference on AIDS. She said, I don't think President Bush is doing anything at all about AIDS. In fact, I'm not even sure if he knows how to spell AIDS. 
And the next day, the Secretary of Health and Human Services of the United States of America said, our administration will not be browbeaten by movie stars or anyone else on their AIDS policies. And Elizabeth Taylor, when told of this, said, who said that? And she was told, oh, Secretary Sullivan. Well, pfft. I wasn't addressing my remarks to him. Who is that? I was addressing my remarks to the president. (laughs) Just go to the top, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Taylor and Larry Fortensky were married in October 1991. Michael Jackson walked her down the aisle at the wedding held at his Neverland ranch. What? What? (laughs) Once upon a time, Michael Jackson sort of fell in love with the... Public Elizabeth Taylor, her her persona, her aura. You know, we've said just her perfume ads. She is sex. She is confidence. She is old Hollywood. She's glamour. Everything, and he just like loved the concept of her. He performed a little manifesting of your dreams, to which I still say again, please somebody get Amy Poehler, Michelle Obama. <laughs> and Meryl Streep to listen to the History Chicks and send us a note. So if the manifesting can work for Michael Jackson, then it can work for the History Chicks. (laughs) And he invited her to come see one of his shows through their people, you know, and she did come to see one of his shows and he fanboyed it up like, no, tomorrow and much to his distress. I cannot believe he noticed this in the middle of his concert. She got up and left midway through, um, which broke his heart. I'm surprised he could even finish the rest of the of the concert. Anyone that was there could probably tell me. Did he sound good after? <laughs> Who's to say? Could you he hear him a- screaming, Elizabeth, come back? <laughs> No, he didn't. He's a pro. He's a pro. Uh, Even with his hair on fire, he was a pro. And if you don't understand that reference, you should Google that. Um, So the crux of it is he reconnected with her and she said, I'm so sorry. I just couldn't see. And it was really loud and it was nothing personal or whatever. And they started talking and they really, really bonded over their childhoods, which had to be lived in the public eye and were often behind the scenes fraught with some abuse and people that were supposed to take care of them, not taking care of them. Um, They had a lot in common. In that regard, you know, growing up in the public eye is hard and not very many people understand what that's like. And they really, on a deep down level, started to become friends. And it wasn't just like a surface friendship. It was a, why don't you come to my 55th birthday party, Michael Jackson, friendship. Okay, there were another 150 people there, but that doesn't matter. Elizabeth invited Michael to her birthday party. And when he was there, she brought him over to an older woman that was sitting in the corner. She said to Michael, this is my dear mother, Sarah. Mother, this is the fellow I've been telling you about. This is Michael Jackson. So she'd been talking about him, you know, like, oh, Michael this, Michael that, you know, like we do about our online friends or podcast hosts, you know, it's like, oh, did you hear what Leon Dolan said? You know, (laughs) that's a Satellite Sisters reference. And if you have not listened to the Satellite Sisters, you really should. Um, Susan and I do that all the time. We're like our friend Leon, our friend Liz, our friend right. Julie. But you know, the fact is, I have never been in a room with any of them. No, but I have never. listened to them for so many years, and I know, you know, lots of personal things. I feel like they're my friends. So, yep. But Michael said later, I just stood there with my mouth open, thinking, "My God, this is Elizabeth Taylor's mother." And Sarah pointed a finger at him and said, speak up, Michael Jackson. What's the matter? Cat got your tongue. Sarah Sarah is still alive and she will be for many years. And she is still an active part of Elizabeth's life. We haven't really been talking about her because there's so much to talk about. 
But Sarah's been here all along, and Elizabeth has had a really close relationship with her this whole time. I love that. Elizabeth had always given her mother credit for who she had become. It could have gone such a different way. You know, her mother kind of pushed her into show business. But she said, my mother started it all. My God, she was relentless, that woman. Sometimes I wanted to kill her. Now all I want is for her to live just one more day. Elizabeth did get her wish. Sarah lived to the age of 99 and didn't die until 1995. (laughs) You know what? There's a quote for everything. Back to the wedding. Now that we had the backstory, there were so many helicopters in the air that no one could hear the vows. One desperate photographer literally parachuted in and had to be manhandled off the premises by security. Who would want this level of fame? Not me. The frenzy was madness. The paparazzi were driven crazy by the fact that the bride and groom had sold exclusive rights to all photography of this wedding to People magazine. And so nobody else was supposed to get any pictures. So this money was what Elizabeth began her own AIDS charity with called the Elizabeth Taylor Foundation for AIDS. That same year, I'm sorry to say, Elizabeth Taylor's assistant, whose name is Roger Wall, died by suicide after his own diagnosis of AIDS, again bringing her public cause home into her house. That same year, the Visual AIDS Artist Caucus promoted a symbol of AIDS awareness, a simple folded red ribbon. You know, Elizabeth Taylor's previous red ribbon didn't really work for her fashion-wise, but this one did. From this time on, Elizabeth Taylor was rarely ever seen without the red ribbon to show her support and advocacy of the cause. Her first big outing with the folded red ribbon was her presentation of the best picture at the 1992 Oscars with Paul Newman, who was also wearing a red ribbon. He is no slouch himself when it comes to causes. You might know, um, by the way, his sesame ginger salad dressing is <laughs> supreme. I'm going to kiss my fingers and throw it to the air. 100% of those salad dressing profits go to charity. So a little taste testing is in order. <laughs> I grew up in the town where his hole in the wall ranch is, which is a uh, camp for kids. Aww. Yeah, that's, that's my little sort of brush with <laughs> Paul Newman. Very small. Well, they wore it and then it rippled out among uh, celebrities. Tom Hanks famously played a man fired for having had AIDS in the movie Philadelphia. And he wore a bejeweled red ribbon pen to accept his Oscar in 1994. And he said in his acceptance speech, I know that my work in this case is magnified by the fact that the streets of heaven are too crowded with angels tonight. They number a thousand for each one of the red ribbons we wear here tonight. They finally rest in the warm embrace of the gracious creator of us all. You know, some, but by no means all of the ribbons for causes that emerged from this phenomenon, of course, pink for breast cancer. That's probably the most famous one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yellow to support the troops. Also deeply influenced by tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Um, the jigsaw ribbon is a new development. That's autism awareness. Orange for gun violence victims. And the rainbow ribbon to support LGBTQ. The same year that Mr. Hanks won his Oscar and wore his bejeweled red ribbon, Elizabeth Taylor made the strangest possible appearance to date in any movie she has ever appeared in. 
Elizabeth was in the 1994 live-action Flintstones as Wilma's mother. Wilma was played by Elizabeth Perkins. You know, (laughs) I think it is funny that she functionally just showed up as Elizabeth Taylor. She has the giant earrings. She has the bejeweled shoulder and neckline. She has the exact same hair. I mean, does anyone remember how surreal this movie was? (laughs) Yes. I love how she comes in, Elizabeth Taylor, and Fred Flintstone says, oh, why is that old fossil here? Oh, there you are again, says Elizabeth Taylor, drunk as a skunkasaurus, having hung out with that bunch of Neanderthals down at the lodge. And he said, the joke's on you. The lodge no longer accepts Neanderthals. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> Y'all, this is really something. I don't even know. Maybe we need to have a couple drinks and watch it again because I shot once in 1994 and um, never again. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. She wasn't in it this much. I wrote down another no. quote. You could have married the man who invented the wheel, but instead you married Fred Flintstone, to which Wilma says he's a good provider. Elizabeth Taylor says he's provided you with nothing but shade. <laughs> like she brought the shade. I don't even know. That was almost like a stunt cameo. The real reason that Elizabeth Taylor appeared in the Flintstones movies was she negotiated that all of the premieres of this movie could be AIDS fundraisers. So we can look at this movie and laugh at it all we want and her appearance in it, but know that it went to a very good cause, her being there. Well, yes, it's doing some good, but it doesn't negate the fact that it's an extraordinarily strange (laughs) element in an already strange movie. Yeah. (laughs) Now, speaking of movies, though, a movie came up that Elizabeth Taylor was not excited about, did not take part in, and actually went to court to prevent it being released to the public. In 1995, there was a two-part biopic, which I insist on mentally saying biopic because that's... <laughs> Me too. Am so- I alone? I do it all the time. No, no, you're not alone. I do too. So the, a movie was in production called Liz, the Elizabeth Taylor story. Number one, that's the nickname she hated. And she hated the very concept of the movie. You are taking my story from me. I'm alive. I'm right here. And you are making money from my life. She went to court to try to prevent it being released and she lost her case. Um, So without her involvement and against her wishes, they went ahead. They just sort of checked off the boxes. Um, One critic called it vanilla flavored bad behavior. Both episodes are on Amazon Prime right now, but you should be warned that it only got 50% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. You can ignore a 50% critic rating very (laughs) often, but a 50% public rating, mm, that is something you got to decide if you want to spend that time. Maybe have it on in the background while you're doing something else. Well, Sherilyn Finn played Elizabeth Taylor and did look a lot like her. Elizabeth Taylor said the only praiseworthy thing about this production was Sherilyn Finn. She's the only good thing about it. She also said, unless these people had been hiding under my carpet, there's no way they could know what happened in my private life. She found it embarrassing and she also found it forgettable. She really never talked about it again. Meanwhile, back at the Elizabeth Taylor homestead, Larry Fortensky is trying to make himself useful. He's doing things like cataloging her art and her rare books. He's also doing things like going in and telling the staff to stop using the china and to use paper plates as a cost <laughs> as a cost saving measure. So maybe their similarities are starting to wane. 
That's amazing. I mean, if you're making $2 a second. I know. But you know what? In his defense, he's also nursing her through double hip replacements and any number of illnesses. I mean, he's taking care of her to the best of his ability. Right. Right. And, you know, as evidenced by what happens later, I think there was real fondness between them. But as time went on, the differences between them were starting to become very apparent. So back in the public eye, Elizabeth Taylor's super weird TV trifecta continues with, in 1996, the strangest kind of meta product placement I have ever heard of. (laughs) So she had been in this flurry of just product releases, diamonds and rubies, a warm, rich musk fragrance, diamonds and emeralds, which is a sharp, flowery fragrance, and diamonds and pearls, which is floral with a tart fruit overtone. Do we sense a theme in the names, however? (laughs) She opens her jewelry box and goes, what shall we name this next perfume? (laughs) Yes, but there was a big publicity push for the greatest jewel in this perfumed crown, Black Pearls, a refreshing oriental is what the marketing material said, but Fragrance Topia said it was peachy powder, which is less glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> there was an extremely weird running bit on CBS. Now, once upon a time, young people of the audience, if you wanted to see a show, you had to have your booty in the chair when the show was on. And so a lot of times the most popular shows were stacked up back to back to make sure people kept their booties in the seat. So from eight to 10, Elizabeth Taylor appeared in all four shows running one night. So at first at eight o'clock, she appeared on The Nanny. I love that show. I did too. (laughs) She appeared on The Nanny. Elizabeth Taylor, playing herself, has lost a string of black pearls worth $300,000. Okay, next show, 8.30, Can't Hurry Love. Here she is looking for them on this show. And then (laughs) 9 o'clock, Murphy Brown. Elizabeth Taylor walks through the newsroom. Yes. (laughs) She gives somebody a sample of, quote, my new perfume. And then at 9.30, High society. She comes in. Well, her hand comes in and her voice says, I found them. And someone says, something smells really good in here. (laughs) I mean, what an odd stunt. I do remember themed evenings where it seems like every show on a network had some kind of element to it. Um, That was kind of fun. But and also crossovers. You know, the Fresh Prince met the Jeffersons once and the Flintstones met the Jetsons. How's that for a crossover callback? (laughs) But this was something else. It was the weirdest sort of product placement. And the LA Times was very tart about it. And I quote, if only those big brains running the networks would spend half as much time trying to improve programming as they do dreaming up irritating new promotional tricks to deceive viewers, we would be a lot better off. Now, critics are one thing, but I remember people being very tickled about it because it is it is weird. And clever. I mean, for the time, now product placement, it's more how can we hide this product placement instead of being as obvious about it as it was during this Elizabeth Taylor era. But at the time, it was clever. It was, I don't want to say cutting edge, but it was kind of cutting edge marketing. It really was. It really was. And even the commercial was more like, you know how back in the Mad Men era, everyone had to talk so much about like, so-and-so agrees, this and the thing, and it's the best and the bandwagon and 50% of Dennis, blah, blah, blah. Okay. This is the literal ad for Black Pearls right now. It's black and white. 
and it's Elizabeth Taylor looking ferociously attractive coming out of the ocean. A man's voice says there's a power that slows the wind and stills the seas. And then Elizabeth Taylor just whispers off camera, black pearls. That's it. (laughs) That's it. It's effective. Well, it's a money engine. I'm telling you, that is a money engine, that whole empire. Woo. All right. The unusual pairing of Elizabeth Taylor and Larry Fortensky only lasted five years, unfortunately, and they filed for divorce. At the time, her net worth was $608 million. And she had recently sold some Hilton stock that she had gotten as a wedding gift from marriage number one for $21 million. And I got a three foot tall cookie jar shaped like a goose from one of my mom's friends, which you couldn't flog today for 680 pennies. Oh, you got married during the goose era. Oh, yeah. Mm. Those geese were on everything. And you know what? Even if this was the goose era, you would not be a goose person. (laughs) I had a a teacher once that said that future archaeologists are going to dig up a certain segment of the suburbs and determine that we had a goose god (laughs) because houses had (laughs) altars to them all through the rings around the cities. That's right. (laughs) Well, of uh, that $608 million, Larry Fortensky got $1 million, and he even went so far as to sue her for more. Unfortunately, he didn't get it, but... No, so husband number eight is is history. They did stay in touch, and it must be said that Elizabeth supported him for the rest of his life, although almost the first thing he did was fall down the stairs and end up in a coma, um, and Elizabeth Taylor ended up in the hospital with a brain tumor. And she said of all of her hospitalizations, in particular this one, I get ill because I live too hard. I give too much out of a lust for life. I never back away. I relish life and I face it dead on. She, in her lust for life, got released from the hospital and almost immediately got engaged twice in one year. Though neither of those relationships crystallized into husband number nine, although things crystallized into giant rocks on her finger again, um, although she did give those back. So if you are old enough to remember the flurry of excitement about the year 1999 and how we all obeyed Prince and partied like it was 1999, Elizabeth Taylor celebrated the hardest of all. So at the last possible moment to obey Prince and party like it's 1999, on December 31st, Elizabeth Taylor received a high honor. She and Julie Andrews were called to London by the Queen to be presented with the Dame's Commander Brooch. Elizabeth got hers for her services not only to the theatrical world, but also to charity, specifically, as the Queen pointed out, her AIDS work. Now, she's confined to a wheelchair. She arrived in London with 24 pieces of luggage, her four children, their spouses, a hairdresser, a makeup artist, her personal assistant, an attorney, and her agent to receive this (laughs) honor. Oh, yay, another jewel, another piece of jewelry for her. She is a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire and is now referred to as Dame Elizabeth Taylor. It's the female version of being knighted, you know, being Sir so-and-so. 
Um, also enjoying this honor, both Pruleith and Mary Berry from Great British Bake Off, Jane Goodall, Maggie Smith from the likes of Harry Potter and Downton Abbey, etc., Agatha Christie, Antonia Frazier, and Vivian Westwood. Yes. <laughs> it's yet another red ribbon award. <laughs> that is. That joined her pearl necklace, pearl and diamond earrings, her Krebs diamond on her finger. <laughs> I don't know if any of those other women said something like this, like Elizabeth did. You can call me Dame Elizabeth. I've been abroad all my life. Now I'm a dame. <laughs> so, you know, that's pretty much exemplifies like she's not taking anything too seriously, except for she sort of is because she has a giant entourage. So it's like, I'm not, but yet her attorney and her agent were with her. Oh, <laughs> uh, what you know what? We're all a little bit of a mix of contradictions, but Elizabeth Taylor seemed to hold polar opposites in the palm of her bejeweled hand. I love it. <laughs> So meanwhile, behind the scenes, um, pretty much during this whole period, her AIDS work was going on in the background. Of course, the foundations, but it later emerged that she had what amounted to, and I quote, an underground drug ring of AIDS drugs, which were ferociously expensive. People would go in and out of her house, illegal, of course, to receive the cocktail of drugs to treat their condition. But she did this out of the generosity of her own heart. Now, you might recognize this as the literal plot of the movie The Dallas Buyers Club, which was based on a different true story of a different quote, drug ring happening. A man named Ron Woodruff was doing the same thing, skirting the law, for the greater good. And um, so to get a little glimpse of what that might have looked like in Elizabeth's house, you can watch the Dallas Buyers Club starring Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> I do have another quote for this because she said, if you think you were born with privileges or given privileges, then you should share them like money. It's to share. I've known too many people who just sat and hoarded and were miserable, just miserable SOBs. I have always believed that giving is one of the reasons we were put on this earth. Yay, I love yeah. it. You know, she had all her Hollywood drug dealers in her life before. Why couldn't she become one for something good, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, at the age of 68, Elizabeth Taylor accepted her last screen role. She starred in a movie with Debbie Reynolds, Shirley MacLaine, and Joan Collins in a movie that was written by Carrie Fisher called These Old Broads. <laughs> the premise is very on the nose, isn't it? Three big stars from the 1960s had their movie go viral. I mean, this was like probably before viral was a word, but their old movie from the 60s went viral and their appearances were requested everywhere. And there is a lot of history between the characters. In fact, talk about on the nose. And keep in mind, this was written by Debbie Reynolds' daughter, Carrie Fisher, the Elizabeth Taylor character. And Debbie Reynolds' character once in the 60s fought over a man named Freddie, who is clearly Eddie Fisher. <laughs> Um, one stole him from the other one and they got over it and they made up because he's just a man and their friendship's more important than that. Okay. I would like to tell you, because we forgot to mention this in 
I'm sorry. Part one, part two. I forget where we talked about it. (laughs) I would like to say that in 1966, there was um, what I'm going to call a cruise ship reunion and makeup session between Elizabeth Taylor and Debbie Reynolds. So, you know, Debbie Reynolds was about to get on this ship and she saw a lot of luggage going by, including weird things like a birdhouse and like all kinds of stuff. Oh, is there some royalty on our boat? Oh, yes, there is. It's Elizabeth Taylor, to which she thought, frick, probably not frick, is all I'm saying. And so they aborted. She was fixing not to get on this boat. And her husband, obviously not Eddie Fisher, the next husband, the one she was currently married to, said, it'll be fine. Let's just get on the boat. Oh, my gosh. It'll be fine. And knowing each other was on the boat, they started sending each other secret notes. Like, remember the time, blah, blah, blah. Ha ha. Remember the time, blah, blah, blah. They got very, very drunk together and made up. I mean, this is the classic ovaries before broveries. <laughs> or what's the other one that Leslie Nope says? Uteruses before deuteruses. I mean, <laughs> the guy is one thing. Our friendship was real. We need to rekindle this. It is fine. So that friendship has been back on track for a few decades, you know? So I feel like Carrie Fisher thought, I can officially now make fun of what happened because they're fine. Right. You know? Right. Now, on paper, this movie sounds like it's going to be fantastic. And I think at the time it was better because of the way society was. But now watching it, it seems like it was just kind of that drunken on the cruise ship time for Debbie Reynolds, Shirley MacLaine, Joan Collins and Elizabeth Taylor. The people, not necessarily the characters that they're playing. There's so many. It's just like two hours of sex jokes. (laughs) which is okay. But Elizabeth Taylor plays this ruthless agent who's (laughs) still controlling the careers of these women from her sofa with her legs, you know, up and snapping her fingers and making these million dollar deals and drinking at the same time kind of thing. It was weird. Yeah. And I didn't see, I should probably look what the Rotten Tomatoes rating is. There's certain movies that just have to exist for a moment in their own time. I mean, people would get the jokes and the references and Mm -hmm. all these women were kind of top of mind. And right now it's just like, huh, there is a movie. (laughs) Right, right, right. I know. The first time I saw it, I didn't hate it. The second time was very recently, and I can't say I loved it. (laughs) But knowing the backgrounds of all of these, that Elizabeth had this relationship with Debbie Reynolds, that Shirley MacLaine and Elizabeth were up for the same Oscar that Elizabeth won. Joan Collins was offered roles that were given to Elizabeth Taylor. You know, they all had personal history. And Shirley MacLaine got booted out of the unsinkable Molly Brown in favor of Debbie Reynolds. Oh, They all had some interconnected madness in the background. And I wonder how much of this movie is literal Easter eggs that only the four people involved even understand are in there. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe. And I think when it came out, it was super, um, I don't want to say radical, but it was so different because here are these older women. They were in their 60s at the time, you know, talking like the cast of friends, you know, about same kind of things, you know, relationships and men and squabbles. And um, I think the world was more ageist back then. So it was viewed differently than it is now. I don't know. Grace and Frankie is still pretty radical. I love it so much. Mm -hmm. But, you know, much as 
has been made of those stars' ages, too, even right. now. So. But you know what? Meg Ryan is 60, you know? <laughs> we age. I'm not too far behind Meg Ryan, you know? It doesn't feel like our grandparents' 60. Yes. I don't know because I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm imagining. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's defying the law, and she's being feisty, and she is just herself. And nothing says this more clearly than a little adventure that she went on that I would not do for a million trillion dollars. Well, she was all about adventure and trying new things. So she traveled to Hawaii for the purpose of swimming with the sharks. Before she was put down in the tank, they asked her to take off her shiny jewelry because it would whip the sharks into a frenzy. And she said, isn't that the effing point? I mean, I would not do that. I have an absolute fear of that. There was some James Bond movie where one of the characters was in an elevator and the and the elevator failed and they were sealed in the elevator and went under the ocean. And I have like, I have been freaked out about that. Like, so the worst, the worst thing, I just can't bear it. There was a, a, like a piece of Tarzan where they had somebody in a cage and they were lowering it like menacingly into the ocean and I about lost my, I'm like, nope, nope, nope. So Elizabeth Taylor is um, a titan of adrenaline. That's all I'm saying about that. <laughs> Most of the time she was home among her Van Goghs and her Manets and her Cassats and her Matisses with her Maltese dogs. She had two, they almost looked identical. The people that were closest to her got the same kind of treatment from her that they've always been getting. At one point, she invited the mother of one of her friends to hospice at her mansion in her last days of the mother's life. That's how generous she was being. She was honored in a public ceremony at the Kennedy Center Honors, which is tantamount to a Lifetime Achievement Award from the people in her industry. That's got to feel good to be recognized in that way. Um, That's been her whole life, you know? So to have her body of work recognized so publicly and um, receive such a claim must have been good for her spirit. She wrote a book, not her first, um, but one that has a lot of extraordinary photography called My Love Affair with Jewelry. That is very on brand for her. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Speaking of jewelry, she started yet another business at the age of 72. She was still making new friends. One of them was Kathy Ireland, the model. Possibly the most famous in the 90s for her fabulous St. Patrick-themed beer ads. Another woman regarded for her outside appearance, parlaying her money and time into a business empire. She and Elizabeth formed a costume jewelry business together. They were neighbors and they just started a business. Kathy Ireland is now best known for her home decor products. We saw her at market when I once worked for, um, I used to do displays for a lighting company and we would go to market and Kathy Ireland's fingers reach into every single thing from furniture to vases to art to curtains, anything you can put in or on a house her empire has touched. The thing that's in the deep recesses of my mind about Kathy Ireland is when she first became a model and became, you know, superstar famous, she had a very childlike voice and she had to have speech lessons to learn how to drop the octave of her voice to make herself sound as professional as she really was. 
Right. Yeah. Her business is so important. You know, she parlayed that initial career into something greater, just the way Elizabeth Taylor did. Elizabeth Taylor was her mentor and her friend. Now, Elizabeth Taylor was someone else's mentor and friend. Old Michael Jackson was in big, big trouble. The year was 2005, and the child molestation charges were building, especially his activities at his Neverland ranch. Elizabeth Taylor always defended him, um, saying things like, I never saw anything. I watched movies in bed with Michael Jackson. There was no touchy-feely. We just watched Walt Disney. And she said he was, and I quote, the purest, most giving love I had ever known. Now, immediately, their relationship became fodder for comedy. They could not resist this relationship at Saturday Night Live. In one skit called Neverland, Amy Poehler as Michael Jackson and Rachel Dratch as Elizabeth Taylor are sharing a bed. And Michael Jackson says, oh, I like nothing better than holding hands with boys. It's so awkward. And Rachel Dratch as Elizabeth Taylor says, Michael, it's getting harder and harder to be your friend. Hmm. In another sketch called Michael Jackson in a Tree, Michael Jackson says, why don't people understand me? And Rachel Dratch, as Elizabeth Taylor says, pay attention, darling. People think you're a weirdo. Now, she has been on Saturday Night Live uh, lambasted, lampooned. I don't know what the word is. All the way back to the 70s where John Belushi played her. That's not appropriate. Then Joan Rivers played her in an ad called Calvin Klein Jeans. Um, she was played by Molly Shannon in Weekend Update. You know, I mean, so Elizabeth Taylor's support and friendship with Michael Jackson was almost like a punchline by this point. Which is sad because from here, I'm just seeing her as being such a loyal friend, just like she was to Rock Hudson, you know, just like she was to Montgomery Clift. She was to Michael Jackson. I know. And the trial was, you know, looking back on it, people seem to agree that the media coverage was just not only biased. I mean, they hardly ever covered the defense. They only covered the prosecution and that the tone was kind of like gleeful madness, gleeful, trying to bring someone down, this and that. Now, I don't know what the truth is. I was not at the trial and I was certainly not at Neverland Ranch, but officially Michael Jackson was acquitted of all charges for what that is worth. Um, although I do think his reputation was completely ruined. Elizabeth Taylor was devastated by the loss of her friend, by his death in June of 2009, which was drug-related and ultimately was ruled a homicide by his doctor. Um, his doctor was convicted of manslaughter for having provided him with those pills. What has Elizabeth been saying this whole time? The F word? <laughs> no, just that, that doctors prescribe and people take because right. they're authority figures. I mean, she's giving everyone a little no agency to be a grown-up to refuse to take them. But, but nevertheless, the court did rule that Michael Jackson's death was not a suicide. Although her health was rapidly declining, you know, mentally she was fine, but physically her body was not doing well. 
She still managed to get herself back to England. She went to Buckingham Palace in 2010 for the unveiling of a bust of Richard Burton. So she's still living her life. She's doing things like finding new favorite gay bars and going on Larry King to dispel rumors that she was dying and had Alzheimer's. So she's basically just doing whatever the F she wants. (laughs) She went on Twitter, right? Yes. She was even dipping her toes into Twitter, which is dangerous for a lot of people. Her last business venture, Violet Eyes, was released. A light floral. That is the last time a perfume will be released in her lifetime. She was admitted to the hospital with her heart condition in 2011 and died six weeks later on March 23rd, 2011. She was only 79 with all four of her children by her side. Her funeral, according to the Jewish tradition, was held the very next day, was very small, and was family only. But true to form and as part of her final wishes, specifically started 15 minutes late so that she could be late to her own funeral as everyone had been telling her she would be her whole life when they were irritated at her lateness. I love that she went to the extent to write this down, that this is what I want. I want to (laughs) arrive late to my own funeral. She's interred at the Great Mausoleum in Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California. In 1999, she said that she wanted on her headstone, here lies Elizabeth. She hated being called Liz, but she lived. (laughs) What she actually has on her plaque is Elizabeth Rosamond Taylor, 1932 to 2011. No comedy allowed. No less a luminary than Bill Clinton gave her a little bit of a eulogy. Elizabeth's legacy will live on in many people around the world whose lives will be longer and better because of her own work and the ongoing efforts of those she inspired. And that will bring us to the end of the life of Elizabeth Taylor. She sure packed a lot of living into that 79 years. And it was a lot to talk about. Something curious about this episode that I have never experienced before was that we might have had, say, three pages of notes and it went, (laughs) we just talked more than three pages would have indicated. The time got away from us. All three episodes. Yeah. Just as a um, guide, normally I personally, as far as notes go, have 25 to 30 pages of notes for a typical episode, which should have been, you know, an hour and a half maybe. But three pages for a whole episode? Crazy. Crazy. Well, okay. So it is time for media and I will tell you. And you probably already know this, that there's an almost infinite amount of books that you can find, um, her own books, My Life in Jewelry, etc. So we've already talked about those and we'll put them on the website. As to biographies, okay, so I'm going to narrow this down. There's one that's so gossipy, I almost can't recommend it. Hmm. However, I will. <laughs> I mean, this is, this has some, I'm going to say, unsubstantiated madness, madness. It's called Elizabeth Taylor, There is Nothing Like a Dame, All the Gossip Unfit to Print from the Glory Days of Hollywood by Darwin Porter and Danforth Prince. And it's almost too much for me. It has interviews with people. There's lots of bad language. And I just don't know how much of this was verified. It's a very, very interesting read. It's 602 pages. 
Um, it has lots of pictures and lots of behind the scenes. You know, everybody likes a behind the scenes. So it's very interesting, but I found it a little cringy for my own self, but I can see a lot of people would really like it. Well, the title tells you what's inside the book. You don't pick up a book with a title like that expecting a completely fact-checked <laughs> gossip. This gossip's in the title. So um, for a more linear, <laughs> um, less sensational perhaps, but equally long, let's see how many pages this has. Uh, oh, only 412. We're good. Uh, Ellis Cashmore's Elizabeth Taylor, A Private Life for Public Consumption, which helpfully has a timeline in the front. So you Mm -hmm. can flip back and follow along. What else was happening? It's pretty good. I like it a lot. That's the one that I will recommend for straight biography. It's also the most current. It was published in 2016. And it really looks at her life as a trailblazing, non-conforming celebrity, you know, rather than this happened, this happened, and this happened. Right. And it was able to go past her death, which a lot of the biographies that came out um, didn't because she was still alive. For instance, Elizabeth by J. Randy Tamborelli. It's a detailed, it's sourced, um, there's research notes. He began writing the book in 1995, so it took a long time to write. So it's got a lot of detail. That's all I can say about that one. There's a book that goes, it's sort of biographical, but mostly focuses on her film roles. Um, and it's a lot smaller. It's called Elizabeth Taylor, The Pictorial Treasury of Film Stars by Foster Hirsch. And it goes through um, and talks about, you know, the cat, the cat on a hot tin roof. It talks more about Giant, the Queen, the making of Cleopatra, a publicist's dream that turned into a nightmare. So that's what the kind of chapters are about. Um, I liked that one to go into her movie roles a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then there's one called Elizabeth Taylor, The Life of a Hollywood Legend. And it is a photographic tribute. It's mostly pictures with an explanation of the pictures on um, the other side of the page. So it's really good, too, for visual learners. There's so many. Those books that you've mentioned, are not. they're not ones that I got. The one that I was using for that was um, Elizabeth Taylor, 1932 through 2011, Queen of the Silver Screen. And again, if you want a coffee table book, there's plenty of them out there. There's another straight biography, The Biography of Elizabeth Taylor by Donald Spato, Birth to Almost Death. There's a lot of disparaging comments about her weight that I wasn't really fond of in this book. Not necessarily quotes by anybody else, but allusions by the author. So, I, I, you know what? I don't know if I'd read that one. I actually listened to it. So maybe I was just getting cranky when I was walking. One book that I thought was super interesting is called The Accidental Feminist, How Elizabeth Taylor Raised Our Consciousness and We Were Too Distracted by Her Beauty to Notice by M.G. Lord. And it looks at her life through a feminist lens, which is not something that Elizabeth ever claimed, but she never really denied it either. She just lived her life. You know, if it's interpreted as being feminist, which it should be, because she really did take control of her own life. um, I thought this was an interesting twist to look at her life. So I checked out a weird book and it simply says it's, it's orange library binding. As vanilla as you could see. It's just Elizabeth Taylor, stamped in gold on the end. Whatever. It's 
791.43 on the on the thing and and you open it up and it is basically like bound clippings of tabloids. It is the weirdest thing. Elizabeth Taylor's Love Diary, first edition, 1946. The many loves of Elizabeth Taylor, real inside stories. It's basically just like bound tabloids. Uh completely unexpected. It's like <laughs> expecting a very dry book and then getting hit in the face with the National Enquirer. <laughs> I honestly don't know if you could find it again. I mean, I've never seen a book like this in my whole entire life. It um, is from 1957 and is actually called Elizabeth Taylor, The Inside Story of Her Life and Loves. Um, But is it because I'm not entirely sure that this whole thing is called that or is that book just in here? I just can't even tell. It's madness. It's madness. It's like the scrapbook of an obsessive fan is exactly what it's like. Can you take a picture of it so we can put that on the show notes so, you know, people can look for it? Because if you don't know what it's called, although you have its Dewey Decimal number, I guess. And I just can't figure out where it came from. And it's funny because the library doesn't even know either because inside it says James K. Lautzenheiser. And that's not the author. I don't think it's just a name like the guy that owned it, but on the outside, it literally is filed by L-O-U-T-Z. Like the library has no idea what this is. It's so amazing. That's funny. Um, Rounding out the books, we don't ordinarily talk about historical fiction. However, uh, Jan Marie in the lounge wondered if we were going to be talking about The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid, which a apparently is based on Elizabeth's life. Um, and Ava Gardner's life. It's kind of a mix of both. Of them. Ah, okay. I didn't read it, but I wanted to mention that. <laughs> because It is one of those books that is really hot in book clubs right now. So if you're in a book club, somebody has suggested it, most likely. It is in the air. It is everywhere. Oh. Um, and you can, I've got it in my queue. I haven't gotten it pulled up yet, but This is another one of those books that you can get on either Audible if you have an account or check your library in the Libby app Mm -hmm. and um, get in the queue to borrow the audio book. Yeah, that's what I think I'm going to do. There was a book that I did read after uh, Jan had mentioned this. I was like, oh, Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. Um, It's set in Rome during the filming of Cleopatra and Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor play pivotal roles in that book. We don't talk about fiction, but she's everywhere. All right. Now, as to movies, you know, we have that one, the 1995 that Elizabeth Taylor absolutely hated. Watch it if you want. There's two parts. It's right now, as of this recording, on Amazon Prime. And there it is, uh, starring Sherilyn Finn as Elizabeth Taylor. And you can watch These Old Broads also on Amazon Prime, and it's streaming. So if you pay for the service, you don't have to. It's It went by fast. I rewatched it, like I said, and it went by quickly. It's not as quickly as like a lot of painful movies feel like they take forever. This one didn't take forever. So maybe it's a better movie than I think. I don't know. So there is a movie that came out in 2012 called Liz and Dick, um, starring Lindsay Lohan, who's actually a very good actress. If anyone's ever seen The Parent Trap, you know she was good from a young age. You know, another person, though, whose personal life has kind of interfered with everybody understanding that she genuinely has movie talent, you know? Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. That's good. So yeah. the choice of her to pick Elizabeth Taylor was sort of um, inspired, really. 
I don't. I didn't look and see where it's available. It did not get very good ratings. However, it actually got worse ratings than um, the Elizabeth Taylor story from 1995. So, watch it at your own will. <laughs> I don't know that anyone has ever really a hundred percent understood about Elizabeth Taylor and and how you can kind of combine. I mean, we had our own problems getting it all condensed down right. and we had to do three episodes. So I can only imagine a movie guy is having to condense and I don't know. Mm. No, we got to do three episodes. <laughs> yes. The only real um, movie I can recommend is um, a documentary that was made after her death using archival footage and is a lot less, for lack of a better word, hysterical than other homages um, narrated by Hugh Bonneville. Anyway, it's um, also known as Dame Elizabeth Taylor, a tribute, and it was a lot more respectful than most of these movies have been. I would really recommend watching a couple interviews with her. Specifically, the ones that struck me was when she went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson at the very end of his run. And she came out dressed in black leather and looking amazing. And she's just so likable. She didn't seem as though she had airs. I always think of her talking in, you know, kind of a fake voice, but she wasn't. When she was on Johnny Carson, she seemed very real. Ditto when she was interviewed by Barbara Walters. So we'll put those YouTubes up on the show notes. I would strongly recommend watching them because I think you can see her later in her life and just get a good read for who she was. And then, oh, do we have links? We have lots of, you know, the commercial for Black Pearls, lots of clips. If you would like, I can maybe put a couple of those links to Saturday Night Live, but they're not very flattering. So I don't know, maybe cleanse your mind of them. Maybe if you really want them, you'll go search for them and we won't give you the link for them. Even though we only took, you know, an hour to go through three pages, um, there were things that we had to skip over. Something that I found extremely interesting was an article called Six Actors Who Found Their Equine Companion on Set from the magazine Horse and Hound, which I always thought was a made-up magazine for Notting Ham Hill. <laughs> Notting Hill. No, Notting Hill, yeah. I thought it was made up because, you know, your grand's character says, um, I'm here from Horse and Hound. I thought it was made up, but it's real. But it talks about Elizabeth and King Charles, the horse who played Pie and National Velvet, Roy Rogers and Trigger, James Stewart, who had an actual horse named Pie 10 years mm -hmm. after National Velvet. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was cool. And also an old timey website that will help you follow the career of Sarah Southern from the Cowley County Historical Society Museum website. It's like all these little newspaper clippings from her hometown paper following her career. <laughs> also, don't forget the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation dot org. And for a little comedy, uh, how about a recording of how much Walter Cronkite hated the party at Madison Square Garden, which is at npr.org. Later this spring, Katy Perry, the singer, 
is debuting a limited 10-episode series called Elizabeth I, which looks at Elizabeth's life as the first modern-era influencer, activist, and businesswoman. This series was actually done with the support of the House of Taylor, so presumably Katy Perry will have a lot of stories that we never could find, so that would be interesting to listen to. And um, not for nothing, uh, a list of Elizabeth Taylor's perfumes and colognes for men at Fragrantica.com. <laughs> Fragrantica. Oh, that's so fun to say. Everybody. Fragrantica. I have nothing else. And in closing, and to keep it simple, why don't we just leave you with a quote from Barbara Streisand about her friend Elizabeth Taylor. It wasn't just her beauty or her stardom. It was her humanitarianism. She put a face on HIV and AIDS. She was funny. She was generous. She made her life count. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about our show. Find an episode you think your friend would like and have them listen on a road trip or while working from home. And if you could see your way clear to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be spectacular. If you're going out and about this summer and happen to encounter someplace of History Chicks interest, go ahead and use the tag History Chicks Field Trip on Instagram so we can all see your travels. The Pinterest board for Elizabeth Taylor is very, very, very full of rabbit holes to fall down. And our show notes, including links, movie recommendations, book recommendations, and also lots of photos, is at thehistorychicks.com, where you can find links to all of our other show's show notes as well. The song in the middle is called A Fork Where a Fork Don't Fit by our friend James Harper, recording as Harper Active. And the song at the end is In Your Face by Brad Sucks. One of the very few end songs I've ever actually had to bleep, which seems fitting. See you next time. I was barely legal looking for something evil to say and people to be antagonized. And you said to me it's not a good strategy. You should grow up, try to act like you're civilized. Sincerity, you should go yourself and then try to die. You were sick of it and called me an idiot and left town and said, Are you satisfied? If I had what you hate, I could get you to pray. No, I'm not in your face, I'm just getting by. If I had what you hate, I could get you to pray. No, I'm not in your face, I'm just getting by. I'm just kidding.
didn't look into this, but when did like turning cartoons into live action movies begin? Hmm. I mean, I now we, you know, hello, the entire Marvel universe is based on Ooh, comic books. I might but. have an answer to this. Uh, you know, we're going to leave Batman aside because I don't know about Batman. But, you know, way back, talking about stunt casting, I just recalled this. On the I Love Lucy show, mm-hmm. um... There was sort of a weird crossover when Lucy Ricardo um, was telling everyone, bragging, that Superman himself was going to come to her child's birthday party, which, of course, he was not going to come to her birthday party, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then um, George Reeves, like, a.k.a. OG Superman, came on to the set of I Love Lucy and came to the birthday party. And so, I don't know, was George Reeves' show, The Amazing Superman, maybe the first show? I th- oh, that was excellent. I'm going to give you a round of applause on that one. 